0: Good morning, Edgewater. That was almost as good as the 7 o'clock with like one-third the amount of people. So we'll try that again. Good morning. morning. There we go. Thank you very much. Um, My name is James Dennis. I am one of the elders here this morning. I get the privilege and opportunity to um, open the Word with you guys and look at one of my all-time favorite passages in Scripture. So grab your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 1, and while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Does anyone know how Edgewater got its name? Because we're, we're not next to any water at all. Like we could be like Hilltop Christian Fellowship, which would be cool, um, but we haven't always been here, so maybe we would have been like Fruitdale Christian Fellowship, which would now be awkward. Um, <laughs> no, our, our name comes from Psalm chapter 1, It comes from this passage right here. Let's read it together. Here's what it says. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water. He'll be like a tree planted by the edge of water that will yield fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, In all that he does, he prospers. We name the church Edgewater because that's what we want for you. That's what God wants for you, that you would be like a tree planted by streams of water, that you would yield fruit, that your leaf wouldn't wither, and that you would prosper. And so this morning, we're going to dive into this chapter and see what does it have to say about that. So before we do that, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity. Every time I get to open your word, there can be something new for me. And so I pray this morning as we gather, as we read through what may be a very familiar passage, that you would breathe fresh life into it, that you would challenge us that you would challenge the people of Edgewater, Lord, the way that you've challenged me this week in this passage, and that we would come out of this place knowing more of you and pursuing you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've I've got to caveat this, though, before we jump into this passage, because here's the deal. This passage is a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's a list of rules, and I don't want to trigger your PTRD, right? Your post-traumatic religious disorder, okay? I don't want to trigger that, okay? Because when we hear rules and regulations and lists, we're like, oh, legalism. Like, we don't do legalism here. We do the grace and the saving mercy and the complete work for our sins was done on the cross by Jesus Christ, amen? But at the same time, the Bible is full of lists and do's and don'ts, and they're important to us. See, it's not about legalism. Legalism is when you take a list of do's and don'ts and you tie it to God's love. You have to do these in order to earn God's love, in order to earn salvation. That's do's and don'ts. This is about thriving. This is about being planted by rivers of water. This is God wanting the best for you. So let me give you an example. I am a terrible mechanic, like abysmal Okay? I could rewire your house. I could replumb your house, but I could not change the oil in your car. Okay? Not without sinning a lot. <laughs> okay? So I bought a lawnmower about eight years ago, and as a terrible mechanic, I have abused that thing, and it runs terribly. Okay? In eight years, I've never changed the oil. I know, I know. I'm admitting all my sins up here this morning. I I'm still using gas from like two summers ago. I don't know if the belts are—they're probably just threads at this point, right? I've never changed the air filter. I um I don't actually know if it has an air filter. I just—that's things like mechanic people say. Like, have you checked the air filter? Yeah, I did. Definitely. <laughs> it runs horribly. It smokes, it won't start, the blade's so dull it like rips up grass instead of cutting grass. Is it legalism to say that my lawnmower would do better if I was to do the list of instructions in the manual? (laughs) Is that legalism or is that just thriving? That's just good advice. That's just what we're supposed to be doing. See, that's what we have here today. God says this, I designed you to thrive, but you can only thrive if you walk in my ways. And so what Psalm 1 is going to give us is this. It's going to give us three things to avoid. We're going to get a little heavy-handed this morning. Three things to stay away from. One thing to do. And then a beautiful picture of the results, okay? So let's start with this. First thing to avoid, verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the Lord ungodly. The first thing we have to avoid is this, avoid ungodly counsel. And what we're going to see as we go through this passage is this, all of these things that we're supposed to avoid are on one hand really obvious, like duh, and on the other hand they're really subtle. So here's what I mean. When I first read this, avoid counsel of the ungodly, and your Bible actually might say avoid counsel of the wicked, I think of like really bad advice. Like, hey, it's Wednesday night. What should we do? Should we go to church? No, I think we should rob a liquor store. Okay, like that kind of advice. (laughs) Okay, like let's definitely, definitely avoid that kind of advice. But it's more subtle than that. It doesn't say just wicked. It says any advice or counsel that is ungodly or not from God. And the problem is that's the kind of counsel and advice we are surrounded with. And here's the thing. The place where most of us go wrong first is this. I don't even stop to consider if counsel is ungodly. I'm just like, they're describing something that's going on. It's kind of like those drug commercials where they're like, do you wake up tired in the morning? You're like, yes, that's me. Whatever this is, I have this. And so they say, well, are you, you, know, are you depressed? Are you dealing with things? And they talk about what's going on. And then, and then this ungodly advice will give us some advice. And, and we go, oh, well, that, that sounds right. Yeah, I should try that. You know, and maybe their name's got a bunch of little letters behind it, like PhD and MD, and we just go, okay, that's, that's good advice. And we never stop and say, but is it godly advice? Is it godly counsel? And so we take it, and we end up a long way away from the streams of water. And the other area where we go wrong here is this. I fail to realize that ungodly counsel can come from within me. My own mind, my own heart, my own feelings will oftentimes betray me and give me ungodly counsel. And so, God says here, if you wanna thrive, you gotta stay away from ungodly counsel. You've gotta recognize ungodly counsel. And the problem is, so often, the ungodly counsel sounds like pretty good advice. And it's so common. Let me give you a few examples. So right now, in our culture, the predominant way that people make decisions is by their feelings. Okay, I call it the feels-like syndrome. Okay, so you have a decision to make, and you're like, well, it feels like the right decision. Or I'm just, I'm gonna go with my gut. I just felt like a change. I felt like it was time to move on. I felt like I couldn't be in that relationship anymore. I just don't feel love for that person. And so we take our feelings, and we take their counsel, and that's how we make decisions, and I'm not saying feelings are bad and should be suppressed, right? Because that's kind of been a church thing in the past, and like just suppress your feelings, just do what the Lord. God gave us feelings. God is a God who has emotions, and He gave them to us when He made us in His image. They're beautiful and they're wonderful, and they make life rich and full. But they're rarely, if ever, a source of wisdom. This is the source of wisdom. This is where I'm supposed to make decisions. And so often, this will tell me to make decisions that are exactly counter to my feelings. Love your enemy. Be good to those who despitefully use you. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and fall. I don't feel like it. That's not the point. Feelings are bad counsel. Yeah, a lot of the bad counsel I see these days is, uh, is in parenting, right? Like, I just want my kids to be happy. Or you just need to let kids find their own path. And I don't, I actually don't disagree with either of those. I do want my kids to be happy. And every single one of my kids is unique and made individually by the Lord. And I want them to explore their uniqueness. The problem is with that word just, because it's so subtle. I just want them to be happy. I just want them to find their own path. Because if the goal is happiness, then anything that makes them unhappy runs counter to that. That means discipline's out, and saying no is out, and instead we replace it with like placating and pandering, and we don't say the hard things. No, you can't hang out with those kids. No, you can't go to that party. No, that's not a decision I will allow you to make until you're older. No. But that's what God tells us, even right here. See, the example to us of a parent is not supposed to be some mommy blogger. It's God's word. And God says, happiness is great, but what I want for you, what I want for you is holiness. And that's what we want for our kids. And that is a much different, a much higher standard. And I tell you this, my kids are young, so I, I, I imagine I'm going to experience this exponentially so as they get older. But sometimes the path to holiness goes through the valley of wailing and gnashing of teeth, doesn't it? Right? <laughs> Like, we have this saying in my house, like, there's about to be some wailing and gnashing of teeth because some holiness needs to happen, okay? <laughs> some holiness needs to happen, but it's what's right for them. It's not easy, and honestly, it's not the prevailing wisdom and counsel out there if you start looking for advice. But it's godly. It's godly. What about this one? My, my wife asked me to add this one because she says she sees it everywhere and it's driving her nuts, It's, you are enough. Have you guys seen this? Social media posts, t-shirts, you are enough. It's everywhere. And and I get it, okay? It's meant as an encouraging statement in those days where we feel overwhelmed or undervalued or defeated. You're enough, yay, good for you, you're enough. The problem is it's not biblical. It's, It's not. It's ungodly counsel. Because what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that we're not enough and we can never be enough. And there's none righteous, no, not one, right? So then the Bible takes that, it's not supposed to be defeatist, and it backs it up with the good news. The good news that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is our gap filler. That Jesus is our intercessory. That Jesus is our advocate. That Jesus is our righteousness. That Jesus is our strength. Because here's the problem. And here's the subtlety of ungodly advice. When you tell yourself that you're enough, When we tell ourselves or we tell other people, you're enough, and then we fail as we will, we end up in a space where we're more defeated than when we started. Because you're enough slowly becomes, you should be enough. Everyone else is enough. And that's just a lie. We're not enough, but we're adopted and we're loved. And that's enough. See, that's godly counsel. And the problem with ungodly counsel is this. It's so subtle, but it sends us on a tiny wrong trajectory. Right? Like, you're enough is is a good sentiment, but follow Jesus, he's enough. And they don't seem that far apart at first, but over the long haul, they are. Like, one degree of misdirection and a plane traveling from L.A. to New York lands 42 miles off. Okay? It doesn't take much. But over the long time, ungodly counsel sends us in the wrong direction. What about this one? Love is about compromise. That one drives me crazy. Because it's not. What does the Bible say? Love, agape love, God's love, like we're supposed to have for our spouse, is about sacrifice and service. And what if our marriages look like that instead of a couple people standing back and being like, I'm waiting for them to compromise. What would it look like then? See, that's godly counsel. I deserve this. You deserve this right? Almost always stated immediately before we do something we know we shouldn't do, (laughs) right? I deserve this sin over here. No. No, it's going to destroy you, is what the Bible says. Be true to yourself, but I have a sin nature that needs to be put to death. Are you telling me I should be true to that? This one's dangerous. They're a good person, but they're just a good person, Good people need the gospel. Good people need the Lord. Good people need Jesus. But the world would say, well, there's a good person. Just let them them do their thing. It's it's, it's bad advice. It's ungodly advice. And God says this, if you want to thrive, all right, if you don't want to be a smoking, breaking down lawnmower, you got to stay away from it. And you've got to take godly advice. So that's the first thing. He says avoid ungodly advice. Second thing that this passage tells us is this. Stay away from sin. Because after we're supposed to not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, we're not supposed to stand in the way of sinners. And the word that's used here is interesting to me because he says don't don't he doesn't say stay away from sinning. He says don't stand in the way of sinners. Don't be a sinner, and I want to differentiate sinning and making mistakes, which we all do and will continue to do, because this side of heaven, none of us is going to be perfect. With being a sinner, okay, because I've been in both camps, all right? Sinner is more a pattern or a way of life. It's habitual. It's, it describes you. Okay, so it's like this. Um, years ago, I hired this guy. He moved down from the city and he was riding around with me in my truck, and he was just kind of getting to know the Southern Oregon way. And uh, one day we're driving along, he's like, you know, I think someday I'd like to have a horse. And I was like, dude, you don't have a horse. Like, you become horse people. Like, there's there's no just having a horse, okay? Because what happens is, if you want a horse, then you're gonna have to have, you're gonna have to live somewhere totally different, right? You need land, you need property, you need a fence. Right? And then, well, you're going to have to probably haul things around for your horse, so, so now you need a pickup truck right? So to, to bring hay and stuff to feed your horse. And then, well, if you want to take the horse anywhere, you're going to need a trailer. Um, and if you want to do anything with the horse when you get there, then you need tack, you need saddles and blankets. And, and pretty soon, you've got the boots and the pants and the hat. And, and you're, right? We call them cowboys, but they're horse people, right? That's, that's really what's, and, and no, no disparagement on horse people. Like, if you are horse people and you've got a teenage son, send him my way, I'll hire him tomorrow. Like, they're the best hard work, awesome. But the point is this, it's, it's more encompassing than that. It's more of a pattern than that. It's part of who you are. And I know this. I know that on a Sunday morning, there are people here who would fall into that category. That sin is is a very real and consistent part of your life. You are, to use the Bible's words, a sinner. And sinners fall into two categories, and I know this because I have been both. Okay? Pray by the grace of God, I don't end up there again. But I've been in both places. Okay? The first category of sinner is this. You're sinning, but you're still having fun. And it hasn't caught up with you yet. And you're getting away with it. And you probably don't even see any real problem with it, right? You're just playing the field or sowing your wild oats or you're just a bit of a party or, or you know, it, it's just recreational, right? It's going to end badly. Let me just tell you, it's going to end badly. And I get it. I've sat out there in the pew. I've folded my arms. I've looked at the person who drug me to church and been like, see, this is why I don't want to come to church. They're always so judgy, right? They're always so condemning. That's not the heart here. We want for you what the Bible wants for you, which is to thrive and to be planted by streams of water and to produce good fruit. And that lifestyle will not do it. It's going to end badly. We see it every day over there at the office. And maybe this is your week to change and say, you know what? I'm gonna stop before it does fall apart. But there's another group of sinners, because I've been there too, and you're not having fun anymore. You're stuck in a cycle of habitual sin and you hate it, but you can't seem to break out of it. You might feel defeated, you might feel full of shame. I want you to know this, there is no condemnation here for you. None whatsoever. Not from the church and not from God. You are forgiven, you are loved, you are worth it, and you are in the right place. Because without the power of what Jesus did on the cross in breaking sin and defeating death, you'll never get free. And this is the only place you're going to find that. You came to the right place. And it's so cool to me. So when I look at the Bible and I see these passages, what's so cool is that you find a a passage like this in the the scriptures, and then there's other passages that parallel them, and they give you like more information about it. Okay, so let me give you an example. So this exact same sentiment in Psalm chapter 1 also shows up in Joshua chapter 1. Okay, here's what it says in Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. It says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have and then you will have good success that's what Joshua 8 says it's exactly paralleling this but what i found so interesting this last week when i read this is the verses that come immediately before Joshua 8 and immediately after Joshua 8 So look at this. Joshua 5, 6 says this. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Before God gives the... Mandate to Joshua to meditate on his word and not depart from its laws, he says this, be strong, be courageous, because I'm with you. He's encouraging Joshua. Isn't that interesting? The word encourage is this, to fill with courage. He's saying, be courageous. Why? Because I'm going to be with you. And now I'm going to give you a really hard task. Follow the book of the law. Don't be a sinner. And then after he tells them that in verse 8, He's going to say something else in verse 9, often like one of my all-time favorite verses. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's like a help sandwich, isn't it? It's like I'm going to give you something really hard to do here in the middle, but before that I'm going to be like, listen, it's going to take courage, but I'm going to be with you. Now, do this really hard thing. Hey, don't forget, it's going to take courage. I'm going to be with you. And if that's you this morning and you're stuck in that place of sin, let God be your encourager. Let him fill you this day with courage to talk to someone about it, to come up and get prayer, to speak to your spouse, to speak to your parents, because God wants you to thrive And you know you're not. You know you're not. But once again, it's more subtle than just that. It's more subtle than just being a sinner, because here's what the passage says. It says that we're not supposed to stand in the way of sinners. And the idea here is this. Facing, standing in the pathway that sinners take, facing in the same direction. And so the question I have for myself is this. How comfortable is Am I with sin? How comfortable am I with sin? Does it make me uncomfortable? Or does it make me laugh? What we listen to, what we watch, what we talk about, the jokes we tell. Is it about sin? Am I comfortable with it? Because here's the thing that I see in this verse is that sin is a slow digression, isn't it? Because first the man is walking with the counsel of the wicked. Then he's standing. Standing's a little more comfortable than walking. And finally, he's, he's sitting. He's gotten really comfortable with sin. The perfect illustration in the Bible of this is Lot. So Lot is the nephew of Abraham. They're both wealthy. They both are doing really well, but they have so much stuff, they can't live in the same area. And so Abraham says to Lot, Lot, look out, look out over the land. Pick where you want to live. And it says, Lot looked over near Sodom, And saw the green pastures and decided to live over there. And it says in that same passage that Sodom was an extremely wicked city. But he he took his own counsel. It looks nice over there. And then a few chapters later, you see Lot and he's got his tents pitched near Sodom. And then a few chapters later, we see Lot again. And he's seated at the gates of Sodom with the elders. And we know how that story ends. Lot loses everything. It's this slow digression, but it starts with just my comfort level. What's my comfort level with sin? Stay away from sin, Psalms 1 says, because that is not the path to thriving. Okay, so we've got stay away from sin, we've got um, avoid ungodly counsel, and then finally we've got the last one, which is this, don't be a scoffer. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Okay, so what is a scoffer? Scoffer is, probably in this passage specifically, someone who mocks the laws of God. Do we know those people? Do we hear that? One man and one woman? Don't be so old-fashioned. Scoffer. Sex is for marriage. What a prude. Scoffer. Right? The The world was created. Are you kidding me? Don't you know science? Actually, I do know science, and it does point towards creation. But you're a scoffer don't sit in the seat of scoffers, I really think this means don't engage. Don't engage. I will engage with any seeker. Doubts, questions, wants to know, passages in scripture they're having difficulty working through, any seeker. But scoffers? Just don't engage. They're a scoffer. But then the subtle part of this is is that It's not just scoffing God's laws. A scoffer is also someone who just mocks and belittles and makes fun of people around them. And here's what happens. Every time I study to teach, there will be something that jumps out and just punches me in the gut personally. And that was this one. I was reading through this and I'm like, scoffers, yeah, scoffers. And then one day I was like, poof, I'm a scoffer. All right, Lord. And I saw it in myself because it's, So easy to do, and it's really dangerous to turn into a scoffer. And so I've had a couple questions I've started thinking through and started asking myself to see if I'm a scoffer. First, do I operate in absolutes? You never, they always. Absolutes are almost never absolute. It's a way of belittling people. It's a way of making them into whatever sin they have. It's, it's, it defines them. You're defined by this. You always do that. That's a scoffer. Do I use sarcasm as a weapon? Okay. I have a magnet on my fridge. I haven't removed it yet. I haven't decided if I'm going to. Um, that says sarcasm is the body's natural defense against stupid. <laughs> I know. It's funny, huh? Um, but not when I use it as a weapon. Oh, there's occasions and there's times, but when I use it as a weapon and I'm sarcastic about people, I think it sets me up as a scoffer. I think it makes me less approachable. I can scoff with my body language, right? Someone's sharing something in a meeting, and you're like, how long are they going to talk, right? Scoffer. You're a scoffer. This one's driving me nuts lately. Am I, and this, is, this one is not me, okay? So I've got my issues, but this one, okay. Am I publicly negative about my kids or my spouse in an effort to be relevant or funny? You seeing this on social media? And people are just, just hard on their spouses and hard on their kids. And, and I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to be funny. They're trying to be witty. They're trying to get clicks. They're trying to get likes. It's scoffing and we ought not to be doing it. Now, I get it. Like, there are times where we need to sit down with people and discuss, like, how hard it is to be a parent, okay? Because you need that. You need to know that your child is not the only one who's possessed, okay? Like, (laughs) sometimes I just need to know, oh, my kid's not the only one. Your kid does that too. Oh, my goodness, great. But the purpose of those is to uplift and to encourage Right? And so before we post anything, before we write anything, the question I got to ask myself is, what's my purpose? Am I trying to encourage and uplift people here, or am I just trying to get a cheap laugh? Am Am I a scoffer? And this is even trickier to me when it comes to a spouse. Like, I really struggle to find a reason that you would ever be publicly negative about your spouse. I just don't see it. Now, marriage is hard. And there's going to be people that we need to talk to and discuss those difficulties with. But if you're going to discuss the difficulties you're having with your spouse, make sure you do it with a very small group of people who will give you godly counsel and who will respond to your negativity with encouragement. Otherwise, we're scoffers, and it ought not to be so. Is my default to be negative on people, or do I front-load acceptance the way Jesus does? Because here's the dangerousness of being a scoffer. If I'm a scoffer, I can't be used by God to encourage and uplift those in need. I'm not a safe source of comfort, of hope, of encouragement. Right? What did Jesus say? Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will mock you for being weak. But we do that. And then we're like, well, people don't come to me, people don't, I don't get very many opportunities to disciple people or pray with them. Well, you're not a safe space. You're a, you're a scoffer, and so you can't be used by God in that way. You're, we become people of shame instead of people of grace and people of condemnation instead of people of hope. And, and I just don't see it. I just don't see Jesus ever being that way. Now, Jesus called out sin, but not in a mocking, disparaging putting down way. Because when we do that, what we're saying is, you, you will probably never get it right. That wasn't Jesus's heart, ever. And it's, it shouldn't be our hearts either. Because here's the other thing that scoffing does to me. It makes me drop my guard. Because when I start scoffing, when I'm sarcastic, when I'm negative, my idea is like, I would never do that. Can you believe they did that? Man, I, w- I would never. And I've got to be really careful because anytime I think I'm immune to a certain sin, watch out. Watch out. And so scoffing drops my guard, and it's dangerous. And that's why it's laid out for us here in Psalms 1. Right? If we want to be like a tree planted, if we want to thrive, we've got to avoid these things. Ungodly counsel, sin, Scoffing. But what I love about the Bible is this. It never just gives us a list of things not to do, because that's depressing, right? The Bible always turns around and says, okay, do this instead. Do this instead. And the other thing that I love is typically the list of do instead is shorter than the list of don't do's. It's like, don't do all these. Just concentrate on this one thing, right? Because what does he say in verse two? After he gives us this list of things not to do, he says this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If you want to avoid verse 1, then we have to be people who meditate on the word, verse 2. Because God's word automatically addresses all of these issues and so many more. Well, look at a few verses. Soon. Soon. (laughs) your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What is that? It's godly counsel. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's protection against sin. And we've got Hebrews. It says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit and of joints of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word keeps me humble. And when I'm a place of humility, I am very rarely in a place of scoffing. And it's more than just that. Matthew 4 says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it nourishes and sustains me. Romans, through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have a hope. I get hope in here. Hope for the promises of God. Hope for heaven. Hope for what's coming. Hope to keep doing this difficult thing called life. The Bible's our only offensive weapon. You know that when you, when you get all the, the um, armor of God in Ephesians 6, this is the offensive weapon. It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's what we use to combat the enemy. And finally, Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of God. It grows my faith. When I'm in my word, it grows my faith. But what I want to really kind of just dive into a little bit this morning is what it says for us to do with the law of the Lord. It says for us to meditate on it. And you've probably heard this example before. It's gross, but it works. It's like an animal that chews its cud, right? So, so you eat something in the morning. You digest something in the morning. You read through some passage. And then throughout the day, you bring it back up again. And you think on it. And you chew on it, right? Right? And then later in the day, you think on it again, and you chew it on it again. But here's what I know about meditating on on God's Word. It takes two things. First, we have to have something to meditate on, right? Something to meditate on. And here's the thing. It probably shouldn't be that long. Like, I've never meditated on the book of Isaiah, okay? I have, in fact, like, so Psalm 1, I memorized when I was in fourth grade, I am so familiar with this passage, but when I decided to teach it a couple weeks ago, I started meditating on it, and I was seeing new things in it like yesterday. It doesn't have to be long. In fact, it probably shouldn't be long. It also doesn't have to be new. Like, I don't know where we got this idea that a good devotion life meant you said a certain amount of scripture you read every day, like one chapter or five chapters or ten chapters, whatever yours is. And then the next day, you read the next passage. That's reading through the Bible, and it's great, and it's important. But it's, it's not meditating. It very rarely creates a, a sense of meditation on the Word in my heart. And reality is we should be doing both. We should be reading and studying, and then we should also be meditating. But when I looked this up last week, I saw like 20 verses on meditating on the Word and only two on studying, not eliminating studying is important. I'm just saying, are we concentrating on this? Because it's so huge. And the other thing is it doesn't need to be difficult. Like sometimes, especially if you've walked with the Lord for a long time, you feel like you should just concentrate on like a difficult scripture. Like I'm going to meditate on lamentations. Go for it. That's fine. Have at it. Enjoy yourself. You'll probably get wonderful things out of it. But it doesn't have to be that way. This is one of the most simple, straightforward passages I can think of. But it's rich and it's full. So let me give you a recommendation to start a habit of being a Bible meditator. This next week, this next month, pick a book, pick a simple book. I would say Psalms, I would say John, or I would say Ephesians. I think Ephesians is gonna be mine. And read maybe a chapter a day. Ephesians chapters are pretty short. Some Psalms are short, some Psalms are long. Um, John has some pretty long passages, so you might read half. I'm talking 10 verses, maybe at the most, 10, 15. And then read that again the next day. Same verses. And again the next day. And again the next day. And then meditate on it. And see what the Lord shows you. And then after a week, if you feel like you've gotten out of that passage which you're supposed to, then move on to the next one. At this rate, it would take six weeks to work through the book of Ephesians, which technically takes 20 minutes to sit down and read, But it's so rich, and it's such a wonderful way to study God's Word, and it's what we're called to do here. But meditation on God's Word doesn't take just something to meditate on. It takes a space to meditate in. For the vast majority of human history, this happened naturally. You're out in the field. You're working. You'd be thinking on things. You're walking from point A to point B. You'd be thinking about things, but not anymore, right? We are the most distracted generation in the history of earth, exponentially so. Even 15 years ago, you'd have like five minutes in the grocery store line to just let your mind wander. But now we don't, right? We was pull it out and scroll, read all the ungodly advice, right? My point is this. What used to be natural is now going to have to be intentional. It's going to have to be intentional or we're not going to do it. I only do this well when I'm preparing a message, otherwise I struggle with this. But when I'm preparing a message, like I, I do a lot of time driving, and so I'll make sure that at least one of my trips per day, 15, 20 minutes, I just turn the radio off and just let my mind wander and maybe think through what I read this morning and meditate on it. And I'm telling you, it's weird. It's like, at first you get all twitchy, like, whoa. Like, I'm not distracted, something horrible is gonna happen. <laughs> it's hard to do, it's, it's hard to retrain yourself, I was sitting out on the porch the other day, and my kids were playing, and they were doing their thing, and like, I, I pulled my phone out, and I was like, no, no, you idiot, put it down, right, and then I'm watching them, and like 30 seconds later, I had my phone in my hand, I'm like, oh my goodness, I had to walk inside, I had to put it on my desk, I had to come back outside, and then I had to sit there and be like, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, <laughs> but it has to be intentional, and when we do this, Man, the results are so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Because I'm meditating on God's word, I'm seeing his counsel, and I'm seeing the dangers of sin he talks about. You know, it's interesting, this verse says that his delight is in the law of the Lord. And I always thought that, like, someday, if I read my Bible enough, I'd be one of those people who, like, wakes up in the morning and is like, Yes, I just love God's word. I can't wait to read it. And I might get there. I'm getting there. But more often, the delight to me comes in the meditation, right? I read it and I think about it and then I read the same passage the next day and I think about it and then I read the same passage the third day or the fourth day and I'm going about my day and I'm creating a little space for silence and then I feel God speak to me or something new comes to mind. I'm like, whoa, I've never seen that before. It's delightful. Unless he shows you that you're a scoffer and then it's painful, but (laughs) it's good. It's good. And so he says this, he says, man, God says, I want you to thrive. You need to stay away from these things, and you need to be a person who meditates on my word. And if you are, then this is what you'll be like. And we get verse three, the Edgewater verse. He says, first, it will be like a tree planted by streams of Water. We don't get the imagery here that that's supposed to conjure up in your brain, okay? Because we live in the Pacific Northwest and there's like just trees everywhere, right? If if you say it's a tree by the river, we're like, oh, it's a cottonwood, I hate those things, (laughs) right? That's not what we're supposed to picture, okay? This is what we're supposed to picture, right? This is what these people would have pictured. This is what David was probably thinking of as he's writing this in the wilderness, as he's being chased by Saul. Man, I came around the corner and there's this desert landscape and nothing's growing. And I saw these trees and I knew, I knew they were planted by water. That's what the Lord wants for us. He says, I want you to be like a tree planted by streams of water, sending your roots down deep into my word and the truth it says about how I love you and what I've done for you. We can be like a tree planted. But we can also... This will also allow us to withstand difficult times. See, it says in this verse that the leaf doesn't wither. But there's a passage in Jeremiah that's almost exactly like Psalm 1, kind of like in Joshua. And in the passage of Jeremiah, here's what it says. It says, you're gonna be like a tree planted, and it says, you won't fear when the heat comes, and you won't be anxious in the year of drought. He says, because you're planted in my word, and my laws and what i've told you about myself you'll withstand difficult times you'll be able to withstand difficulty your tree won't wither and because of that you're going to bear fruit that's what it says number 3 that you will be bearers of fruit edgewater we want you to be bearers of fruit over and over and over again the word says be a bearer of fruit and it's such a cool illustration and picture for us because there's so many things we can learn from this idea of being fruit. Everyone's attracted to a fruit tree, right? Birds, bees, bears, hungry people, like everyone's attracted to a fruit tree. If you want to be in a person of ministry or moving forward the kingdom, if you're bearing fruit, people are naturally going to come to you. But it also says something that I think we need to see here is important. It says it yields its fruit in season. See, there's no such thing as a fruit tree that's always fruiting. Every tree has seasons. And I don't know how we get into this idea that I'm constantly supposed to be in this really, really flourishing, fruitful place with the Lord. Seasons are natural. Stagnation is not. Okay, so we had a baby four months ago um, no, almost five months ago now, and our fourth kid, and I was like, okay, when we have our fourth kid, like, we're not going to change our lives at all. Like, we're going to be back in church. Like, if if she's born on Saturday, we're going to be in church on on Sunday, right? And then two weeks after she was born, she got super sick. She's, she's fine. There was lots of prayers. It's wonderful. And then there was a stomach bug going around, and then my whole family got COVID, and like, we weren't in church for four months, which wasn't great, but it was a season. And I could have been really, really hard on myself and my family and feeling defeated, but I, I was able to step back because of the law of the Lord and be like, wait, this is just a season. This is just a season. It's a dormant season. It's what we need to do. Springtime's coming. Following that is harvest. Maybe there'll be another dormant season. See, see trees have seasons the one other thing about fruit is this. Fruit is different than results. Americans, man, we can be so results-oriented. How many people did you bring to Christ? How many people did you invite to church? How many chapters did you read? How much did you pray? See, here's the thing with fruit. Fruit contains within it the ability to produce more trees. That's what fruit does. Fruit can duplicate itself. Fruit feeds. It's what God wants us to be planted by streams of water, not fearing drought, fruitful, and finally, prosperous. Finally, he says he wants us to be prosperous. And I know the word prosperity has gotten a, it's gotten a dirty connotation in Christian circles because of prosperity gospels, right? That preacher in the white suit who's up here and is like, if you give $5,000, then you will be always happy and always rich and always beautiful because God will love you. And it's name it and claim You know what I'm talking about? No one clearly knows what I'm talking about. Good for you. <laughs> That's not at all what the Bible teaches. What is a prosperous tree? I mean, we've seen that it's fruitful, but what else makes you know that a tree is prosperous? It's growing. It's growing. No matter how little it is, no matter how new of a Christian you are, no matter how long you've been in church, you can still be growing. The largest trees are continuing to grow and the smallest sprouts have a giant life in front of them. We're growing. That's what God wants for us. We were designed to thrive. And if we'll put forth the effort to do the things he's done, if we'll, you know, change the oil and maybe the air filter and, you know, put new gas in it, it's gonna gonna work better. But here's the thing. Absolutely none of this matters without the work that Christ did for us on the cross. This is just morality then. This is just a list of do or don'ts. If it isn't for what Jesus did for us, none of this matters. That's why we take communion. Because it's great to talk about these things. But if we don't keep this if we don't keep the free gift of salvation, if we don't keep his body and his blood in front of our minds, none of it's going to matter. There's three things that I always like to remember when I take communion. One is how to get it open. I had to, don't tell anyone at seven o'clock. I had to fake it last service. I literally couldn't get it open, and then it started squirting up my shirt, and I was like, forget it. I just turn it around like this, and don't tell them, okay? This one's real, so it's more holy. Um, <laughs> there's three things I like to remember as I come to communion. The first is this I'm forgiven. Man, I'm forgiven. I'm, I've been in the place of a consistent sinner. I've been forgiven for that. And I still sin and make mistakes, and, and I'm forgiven for that, and, and that's simply because of his love for me. But I also like to remember that I'm not alone. Like Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and then he said, I'm gonna send a helper, and it reminds me that like I'm in this with you guys, and Jesus is my helper. But then the final thing it reminds me of is, is hope, Because what did Jesus say? He said, man, I'm not gonna take this again, I'll take it with you in paradise. So every time I take communion, I think, man, we have the most glorious hope in heaven. Someday, we get to sit and we get to take this with our heavenly Father in paradise. And I'm so excited for that day. Until then, may we do what God has put in front of us to do. Father, I thank you for the promise that communion reminds me of, for your body, for your blood. Shed for me for forgiveness of sins, that I might follow you. Maybe remember that today as we take it together. Let's take the body. Father, this cup, I can't wait to drink it with you someday in heaven. I'm so thankful that you made that pathway possible. Fill me with hope this day. Fill us with your grace. Let's drink together. So Father, as we go, as we head back out, I would pray first and foremost, we remember your love, your son, what you've done for us. And also remember that you want us to thrive and that we would follow the godly counsel given in Psalm 1. Things to avoid. That we would be people to meditate on your word. Be with us this day. So as always, afterwards, there's going to be people up front. If you want prayer, if you've been stuck in a place of sin, if you need someone to pray for you, if you have questions, man, people want to pray for you. Come up, get prayer. If you don't know the Lord, if you've never stood back and said, you know what? I'm not doing so good at this life thing on my own. I, I I need help. I need a savior. I need a king and I'm willing to dedicate my life to him because he loves me and he saved me, then then come up, get prayed for that. And and if that's you and you make that decision today, then then go and see Lowell and we'll baptize you. Baptism doesn't save you, but it is our first act of obedience to say, yes, Lord, your ways are right. My ways are wrong. Forgive me for them. Fill me and be with me. Amen? God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday.